response to Ava DuVernay's new film Origin. Yes, I am reinterpreting the concept of power ballad as Wallace had it so tightly framed and of course will again every Friday, (laughs) next Friday in fact. Uh, Breathtaking video this one. The song was released in November and the video is gorgeous. Uh, It's shot in Te Puea, Te Patu, Waitomo Caves, Kaiate Falls, Mount Maunganui, Tongariro National Park. It's pretty stunning. Check it out on YouTube if you can. But circling back, mm-hmm. because we were only just briefly there, I felt, with Pride and Prejudice, Penny. <laughs> so um, I, I don't want to lose you there, Selwyn. So stay in the mix. You can be our Mr. Darcy just for oh. this moment. But Penny I'll, was... I'll do my best. <laughs> well, you're doing very well because it's all about the understated, and I think you're there in that. <laughs> and you I mean that compliment in a complimentary way. Yeah. But Penny, you have some Jane Austen Oh, yeah, one or, one or two. Yeah, I've been doing Jane Austen shows now since 2008. And I bloody love Jane Austen. And, you know, as it's my 50th birthday. She died when she was 41. She only got to experience six years of being published. I've been doing her shows almost three times as long as she was able to enjoy being published. She was also She also gets crapped on, excuse me, quite a lot from people who say, oh, it's just women's stuff. You know, like women's stuff is to be diminished as it just 51% of the population for a start. But also it's the only world she was actually allowed to inhabit as a woman was the one that she did. Um, she was a gentlewoman. Um, and then to use that as a cudgel to hold her down and other women for actually appreciating her when she actually fought for so long to be published because she was a woman really drives me crazy. What year did she die? Um, 1817. 1775 to 1817. So since 1817, her work has remained with us, which is quite a contribution considering she died at 41. Yeah, yeah, and it took off hugely very quickly. And then, and then she died. And no one's quite sure why she died. Um, there's numerous theories. But, you know, she didn't get to enjoy. If she came back now, she'd, she'd be astonished. I've actually donated money to the Jane Austen Museum because I probably made more money out of her than she ever did. Selwyn, have you read Jane Austen? 
Yeah, and watched. So, um, you know, what, mm, I think well one of the contributions is huge, you know, in the sense of a window in on the social conditions for women at that time too. Absolutely. The exclusion from inheritance is a big yep. theme that seems to run through. You know, those inequalities that were institutionalised yep. to yep. the extreme. You know, that's, you know, maybe it's a guy thing, but that's what really endures for me with um, Jane Austen's, but other people like Charlotte Bronte and all of those as well, you know, mm. bringing up the conditions of the time. In years to come, I'd hope that people will look back at those that are the communicators of where we are now, because we mm. are given witness to a world that no one else has ever written about. Mm. And those kind of things will, you know, of what was it like to live there? What were the roadblocks that stopped people reaching potentials? They're they they endure on no matter what year we're in. And look, I'm right with you with the Jane Austen thing. Yeah, and that's so. why, you know, art and culture is so important as a reflection of the time to be looked at later as history. You know, like yeah. that's why dismissing that sort of thing is, is ludicrous. Um, and also being in my 50s, it's things like, well, I'm not yet. Tomorrow I'll be in my 50s. Not yet, but I love how you're embracing them. Penny. That's right. But, and also like to, <laughs> to do new things. Like this year I'm actually directing um, Sense and Sensibility that I wrote. It was at the Court Theatre last year, but I'm directing it this year in Wellington at Circa. And, and it's just so relevant because it is around women's financial insecurity, particularly going into widowhood or retirement. Like it's all about the fact that the money was entailed away from the whole family against the father's will, but that's what it was like at the time. So it's about the search for security and, and love. I'm going to segue off mm. this because it's so I'm not I'm re, I'm referring to financial security here, and this is a, someone who's texted in. My wife is a GP specialist, GP college fellow. She's not working as a GP as the income is not sustainable. Australia and the UK value their GPs and pay five times to ten times more. The problem isn't the training; it's the retaining. Five to ten times more. I mean, every story we're talking about so far is about we just don't have enough money, right? We don't have enough money. We don't have enough money. Well, um, we're staying on the we don't have enough money, or at least the money's being cut with our next topic. We talked about this on the panel yesterday. Of course, it's been in the news everywhere today, overnight, and today with the government announcing the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax will end in June. Mayor Wayne Brown told Morning Report today Auckland City Council would look at cutting projects or finding other ways of paying for them. He ruled out putting up the rates. With the funding shortfall, there are 30 projects at risk of being cancelled. Some of the money generated by the tax has been put towards bus lanes, roading upgrades, cycleways, projects that Auckland Councillor Richard Hills said were needed to fight congestion. To discuss this, John Reeves is the National Coordinator of the Public Transport Users Association of New Zealand. Welcome, John. Good afternoon. Well, this was part of National's campaign, right? So it's not really a surprise to you? Yeah, we all knew this was going to happen. We just didn't know exactly when it would be announced. And how about the how? I mean, did you think that they'd announce it with something else in the offing to help offset the loss of this income? Yeah, and you're right. We actually had hoped there would have been some sort of alternative offered at the same time because you just can't cut funding and then say, well, <laughs> let's hope the projects keep going with no money. You do have to come up with an alternative, say perhaps central government will fund the existing projects planned or, or something like that. But nothing, there was no alternative announced. Mm. 
So what happens now? What do you know? What can you tell us about what happens to these plans that have been, that funds have been allocated for? That's the other thing to identify is that funding has been allocated, but mm. these plans can't go ahead because of this cut. Well, well, there's a couple of things though. We do know not all the funding has been spent yet, so there's still you know a few hundred million dollars that hasn't been spent yet. I think what needs to happen though is we did see the money allocated into very expensive speed humps, which I know most Aucklanders were not too impressed about. Um, so I think if the funding had been put into more public transport that you could actually see, for example, more bus lanes around the place or increasing the railway services out to West Auckland to Huapai, if the public could have seen that, they'd have been really happy with it. But I think when they were paying these taxes and then seeing loads of speed humps put everywhere, they probably weren't too impressed, to be honest. I'm just so sick of the public transport in the city. It's just so rubbish. And, you know, and this is something that they had actually a low level of support for removing this tax, which is an unbelievable thing to say. But I read it was like 28% supporting for the removal of it. And it's just so tedious. Like, and I'm a cyclist. My husband's a cyclist. The anger towards cyclists is just outrageous. And, the, you know, the Northwestern is a super highway for cyclists because people feel safe that they're not going to get shouted at or ran over, which I've experienced both of these things. So is my husband. So it just, you know, and the fact that they're going to have tax cuts for this, like funded by cigarettes and all this, it just makes me furious, actually. makes me furious. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, well, look, what we should be doing is we do now know that there's going to be public transport potential cuts in capital projects. We need to look at other uh, areas to save money. Now, this is a real simple one. Currently, we use foreign multinationals to p- supply the bus services in Auckland. Now, these guys don't do this because they all go to church on Sundays. They do this to make a profit. And so how about we start to bring the public transport bus services back in-house, get rid of the profit area that's sent offshore, and uh, keep it run by Auckland Transport directly? But how realistic is that, John? How quickly could that happen? Well, we'd have to do it, look, I'm guessing we'd have to do it as the contracts, existing contracts come up for tender, you know, in the next few years, and then start taking over from that point. But how realistic it is? We used to do it in Auckland. We used to have yellow buses, ARA, all over Auckland, and we had them for decades and decades. So we have done this before, and we didn't have to go and make profits to send overseas. Mm. We actually could run the services cheaper uh, or reinvest those any profits that we make, reinvest that funding back into more buses and what have you. So at the moment, we are well sending seen. the fat cats a lot of money overseas. Yeah, but right-wing governments are never going to you know, nationalise things again, are they? No, well, we were trying to aim for this with the Labour government too. We were trying yeah. to promote them doing it, and they didn't want to do that either. So it seems like the... Uh, the uh, neoliberalism is well ingrained also on the left side of New Zealand government as well. Salwan, have you got a question for John? Yeah, um, just an observation here too. And How significant do you think that the government headwinds are on this? It's bigger perhaps than the localised solutions. For example, this is, in my view, political incompetence at worst, at best an uncoordinated, unthought of kind of trajectory of the project. What, for example, one would imagine if you come out with a significant cut like this, that you would examine the consequences and come up with the solutions. And I think the national-led government is, is, is advised to do that in many ways. It's, it's compelled and expected to do such a thing. This is uncoordinated. So I think this has shifted all of the emphasis on what is Auckland City going to do in response to having this huge fiscal hole. These kind of projects and these kind of plans that you're outlying, I'd say, John, are very good. They're very 
well thought out and obviously a part of a strategic direction. But if the government is uncoordinated, has headwinds that is contrary to the interests of which people you know, would expect up here in, in Auckland, then you've got to question whether or not the political system that they're embracing is competent enough to deliver the, to what people expect. I, this is where I'm coming from, from the point of view of you cut taxes Yep, okay. People voted for a government that was small government, small footprint, small tax in its ideologies. But what comes next? There is a cause effect. So coming back to the solutions, I ask you, John, what are the solutions considering that is a dynamic? Yeah, I know. And it's really going to be down to some serious lobbying. I mean, you've got to remember, it's um, well, the new government is ACT, National and New Zealand First. So New Zealand First being a very centre party is probably one to really coordinate some activity with to encourage them to perhaps look at alternatives to how the public transport services are operated, uh, not only in Auckland, across the whole country. Do we need to be financially backing up multinationals from overseas? Question uh, for you, bundle? John. Where does the money come from right now that this source is being stopped? I, I think well, they're going look, for yes. PPPs and overseas infrastructure investment. But if that's but the what case, does John think? Clean on it. Well, look... Yeah. We've heard them mention PPPs. Now, PPPs are nothing. It's really kicking the can down the road, and they end up with a higher cost to the New Zealand. Yes, so where does it come from, John, if it's not PPPs? Just to finish. Well, mate, yes, okay. Look, at one point, if we want to reduce congestion, we probably need to divert funds away from just constant road building or adding more lanes to roads and bring that over to public transport. Because the more lanes we build, the more cars we induce on the road. So we don't get rid of congestion. We have to have a real active change in the way we invest in Auckland City. You've got over 150,000 people net migration coming to New Zealand and probably the majority of those are going to come to Auckland every year. Majority of those, if you take, say, people from India, Pakistan, they're used to using public transport. So let's have public transport for when they arrive in our country, they can yeah. use them as well. Okay, yep. we're going to leave it there. This is ongoing and look forward to having another conversation with you at another time, John. You too, someone on it, and you too, Penny. I yeah. know that we will. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Just it's... the rates burden is too much. It's too, too much. much. Yeah. It's too much. We are 13 minutes away from five. And here we go. 20 schools, 20, have had big major projects uh, to add or a new classrooms put in limbo because of cost pressures and uncertainty about roll numbers. The decision affects the building or redevelopment of more than 100 classrooms two teaching blocks, two gyms. Education Minister Erica Stanford told Nine to Noon this morning the ministry had been over-promising under-delivering. Kaipara College says it won an apology from the ministry over how the pause was communicated. Different story at Ashburton College where Simon Coleman is the principal. Kia ora, Simon. Kia ora. How are you, Susanna? Good, thank you. Thanks so much. I know that school is has technically finished with the students have all left now, so we've timed it well just to catch you for a moment. What's happening yep. at Ashburton College with new classrooms? Well, we've um, obviously we started this, this year with the opening of our new block, which is uh, amazing. It's a 20-classroom, 20 22-classroom block, um, and it's phenomenal. It's wonderful to for our students. Um, and I guess we're working through that. We also have, obviously, a lot of older buildings that need to be part of the next the next stage, which we're looking forward to um, hearing a bit more about. And so how many classrooms are uh, haven't been built yet or haven't been finished yet? Uh, well, we had 30 classrooms in the next stage. Um, wow. 30, 3-0. Yes, yes. 
And when um, you say next stage, does that mean the foundation's down, or what, what does that um, mean? We've got the yeah, we've got uh, all the base below ground um, aspects have been done, the, you know, the ventilation, heating, all those sorts of things, and now it's um, currently it's got an, an old block on it which is being demolished. So once that's gone, it's really just ready and waiting for the for the next one to 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 be built. And do you think this is going to happen now? I'm very positive that it will. Um, it has been a long journey to get the first one done. Um, but what the Minister's come out with over the last few days is um, exciting from my perspective, that we'll be able to have clear communication and there'll be some action around what happens to our school, um, looking to the future. So you're not worried about this word paused or reprioritising? Uh, oh, well, yes, we are. Um, and I think probably all the schools are waiting to find out a little bit more about what that means. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty confident that we will be able to get this um, moving along. Um, the, we need to because our buildings that we've got are... Uh, uh, there's a lot of substandard classrooms that we've got. We need to be able to um, provide what we need to for our, for our young people. For health and safety purposes particularly. A little bit, yes. We've got leaky, leaky buildings, which we're trying to address at the moment. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day... There's only so much money that you've got to to do these things, so yep. we've just got to do what we can within the funds that we have. So, uh, so in terms of this building that's due to be demolished, once the thirty classrooms are ready to go, how many students are in that building at the moment? In those classrooms, some of which are leaking, as you've said, uh, probably more than half our school. So we're about thirteen fifty. So, um, knowing that secondary school students are moving you know, from block to block, we've probably got sixty percent of the students are probably housed in these other blocks at the moment. Right. And when they're substandard, in fact, you jump in. Sorry, I'm, I'm cutting you off, Solon. Get in there, Hawke's Bay. Any questions for Simon? Um, do, do you see that there's merits from the point of view of what the government's um, education minister has been saying this afternoon, that it has the final stages of a plan to build more school classrooms more efficiently? So what do, what do you make of that? Well... Uh, yes, I'm excited to hear that they're looking at a plan. Um, we don't obviously know what that plan is um, at the moment, but more efficiently, um, I think there's, that's, there's some good that's some good suggestions around how that would look, but I do hope that it's going to be spoken about with the schools and with principals and teams to ensure that we are delivering what we need for the students in terms of the classrooms. Are the schools involved in, you know, the feasibility studies and things like that, or is that out of your hands? Oh, that, um, I, haven't, I wasn't involved in the Ashburton College one, but I do know that there were, um, you know, the, the previous principal and a, and a number of the team were involved in right. working with, with people, which is, is important. Yeah, totally. So just to finish, Simon, when do you hear next what happens to this new block of 30 classrooms that where the work's already started? Uh, that's a that's a big question. Um, we don't. I don't know. We're, we're actually everything's sort of been on that pause, and we haven't had really any communication around what will happen next. Uh, I guess the fact that the minister has stated this in the last couple of days will mean we will have some meetings with ministry. I'd imagine in the in the coming few weeks. But so they're not in your actually, diary yet. They're no, not on my diary yet. No, they're not. Yes. Um, but we hope so. Well, I was just going to say, you're very much a glass half full yes. kind of principal, so hats off to you um, for yeah, just well, staying so positive. Yeah, yeah. We, well, you have to be because it's all about the students and we've got to keep pushing and 
and I guess um, you know putting a good case forward for why we need and you know, better classrooms for what yeah, we've yeah. got currently. Say hi to Mike Clark for me. He's a very good friend. Your head of English. Oh there. sure. Yeah. Oh, he's a wonderful man. He yes, is. He's, he's a wonderful person. He is. Yeah, he I really sure is. Will. Okay. Thank you so much. That's Simon Coleman. He's the principal at Ashburton College. 20 new classrooms just opened in the past few days, which must be very, very exciting. And 30 on the way, just who knows when. Gosh, that's so many, though. 50, right? Like needing, ugh, yeah. Needing mm. to be done. Mm. Well, to finish off this Friday, and yes, it is Friday for just a little bit longer, we're asking if there are enough young people in our boardrooms. Consultant and previous chief executive of the Ministry of Women, Jo Cripp, doesn't think so. She's put out a challenge to directors to think about their attitudes towards young people becoming board directors and trustees. Kia ora, Jo. Oh, kia ora. What sort of things do you hear from directors about young people with board positions? Yes, great. Um, so I was lucky enough over um, the Christmas period to spend uh, some time with some young directors, amazing humans, and um, just understanding their experiences around how they get treated in the boardroom um, really made my skin crawl um, in terms of being asked to you know do the tech uh, fix the Zoom link because they're young, they should know how to do that, um, being sniggered at when they didn't necessarily know all sorts of uh, Sniggering. Yes, sniggering. Mm. And um, lots of jibes about avocado and toast. Um, It seems to be how we like to engage with our young people. These are awesome, amazing leaders who have a lot to offer, but perhaps some of us are getting in the way. Maybe if if they're in the boardroom, if we even have them there, are we really listening to their insights and thoughts and knowledge and wisdom? Sniggering is always so disappointing. No, it yeah. is. It's it's so. Mm. Anyway, I don't know who Bon Jovi get... was or something to that effect. Exactly, exactly. I did have to be careful when I was talking to them when I started making Spice Girl references, though, and they did all know what that was. So, that on, what do you think? I think you know, if you you look at anything in life, you know, diversity and different and people from different walks of life contribute to a better decision, a better cumulative or collective decision coming out of a board. You know, it, it, also with young people coming into a board governance sense, it's really clear that they have an acute sense of what is to come, where where things are shifting to. You know, the older you get, and I know this from example from myself, the less you know about the new emerging markets, the new dynamics. It's, it's, it's ridiculous if a board does not embrace young, innovative, new energy. Now, I'd, I'd say that the challenge too comes from breaking the back of this type of thing is in a commercial sense, at shareholder level, make sure the diversity of age, gender, everything else, ethnicities is, is representative in the board. If it's government appointees, it's the same thing. That's that's yeah. it, it. We cut off our nose to spite ourselves if we do not embrace everything, because at some stage a generational shift will come, and all of those old fellas will be pushed out of the way, and there will be no proper transition of inter, uh, of um, institutional knowledge and all of that type of thing. Yeah. we've got to get su- sane on these things. I and what I think that you know. 
it's like if you're going to talk about the spy schools, then young people should let you talk about the spy schools as well. I feel like we all need to understand each other because, you know, as I said, I've just, have I mentioned it's my birthday coming up, but just like the ageism that I'm feeling around that is something that you get from younger people mm. as well. So I think we all just need to talk to each other because we need all of that experience. I was talking to my friend who's on a lot of boards, actually, and she was saying you just need people who think expansively exactly. and are willing to yes. take responsibility because you do have to take responsibility on boards, absolutely. And it's a same for whatever age anybody is, um, and also apparently you have to you have to endorse every decision a board makes, even if you didn't want it personally, and you have to get behind that a hundred percent. I would be terrible at that. I'd be like, I didn't vote for this, I didn't do that. So these are other things that you have to have as a board member and things as well. One of, but the um, strength the of the debate will often come through and convince you that you know you might compromise in a particular area, but the direction can be satisfying. Yeah. And you see that on trust, build of trustees, etc., as well around the country with education. Sorry, I just had to last button. word to Joe because I'm seeing the clock come and this and the theme music will come. Joe, just to finish, Absolutely. over to you. Absolutely, um, I think um, some of the challenge is that we often think that young people don't have enough life experience, i.e., they haven't been on the planet long enough. But I, it isn't about time on the planet. It's about our insights and knowledge. So I just, as a last thought, let's let's challenge our thinking about um, what what everybody brings to the table. Yeah, yeah, and also they're going to be there longer, so climate change is more important to Here them. There we go, Joe Crimp. Thank you so much, and a huge thank you to our panelists today, Selwyn Manning, Penny. Thank, thank you. you. Happy birthday. Have a wonderful time. Thank you. Yeah. Huge happy thank 50th, you. Penny. Yes, Thanks. happy fiftieth, Penny. Just a young cherub. Thank you very much, everyone, for your texts, for your emails, and we will continue the discussion around the cost, the cost that it is taking for our GPs mm. to be GPs oh, around sorry. the country. I that love conversation will continue. I know we finished that quickly. Uh, here's Stan, a little, bit, a little bit of Stan to take us into the weekend. Kakiteano. Come on, walk up, turn around.